So we look at uh, the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians and chapter 8 and verse 9. Those wonderful uh, familiar words. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. Now, Dr. J. Gresham Machen um, had a famous sermon on the hymn, There is a green hill far away outside a city wall where the dear Lord was crucified who died to save us all, the four verses, and he went through them. The historic basis of it in the first verse and so on. The purpose of it, died that we might be forgiven, died to make us good, died that we might go at last to heaven saved by his precious blood. There was never a recording or even a copy of the notes that he used. And then last year, Ian D. Campbell preached at a communion season on the Isle of Lewis, a series of four messages on the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, on which the Prince of Glory died. That's come out as a a book now, and I've read it, and uh, it's a very fragrant meditation on the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I'm uh, putting myself in the context of men like that because I want to do much the same thing, but not as, as ably as those men did it. I want to uh, speak on this verse, and I want to use the hymn um, 191, Thou who was rich, beyond all telling, all for love's sake, became a man. And I want to uh, look at those three verses and the three different aspects of the, um, of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the great humbling of the Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. 191, I want to tell you first of all um, how the hymn came to be written. You know, it's not, a, not many years ago, about uh, 60 years ago it was written. It was a bleak December day, and John and Betty Stamm made their way back from the Methodist Hospital, many miles away, with their firstborn child. They called her Helen Priscilla, and she was about three months old at that time. And they made their way to the little town of Singte. Today, it's spelled Jingde. I'm probably not pronouncing it uh, properly. It's in the middle of nowhere, then, in South Anhui, in China. And you have to get there on small roads that are cut out of the stone through the mountains. A beautiful place. But as you recall, about 70 years ago, there was a communist rebellion going on in the country of China. And bandits were taking advantage of the distressing social scene and the lack of uh, any police force and they were roaming from village to village committing unspeakable crimes Um, they were motivated by revenge for a society they felt had done nothing for them, given them nothing just had opposed them so John and Betty Stam then, these American missionaries they got back to a little town they lived in a rented shop And they used that shop not only to live in, but as a little chapel where also people assembled and God's word could be read 
and was often preached, and prayers would be lifted up to the Lord as well as praises. And John Stam was a really sharp fellow, and he picked up Chinese then remarkably quickly. Um, his colleagues uh, commented how able he was to write down in Chinese messages that he heard and then to uh, read them again and charge his mind with becoming more and more fluent in the Chinese language. Now there were rumors then um, in the village that the Chinese bandits were on their way there. And Betty, as she was bathing little Helen Priscilla that morning, actually said to her husband, John, do you think we ought to leave? And he said, I don't know. I don't know what to believe. Well, the bandits came to town. And the town leaders barely got out of the village. Um, there was a little train. And they got on that. And they, the train pulled out as the bandits pulled in. And the bandits then went through the streets and through the houses, picking on the richer ones, and rounding up uh, uh, landowners, and bringing them into the street. They came to Sam's door, the Sam's had locked the door, they knocked it down. They entered in, John Stam offered them tea, they refused his courtesies, and they stripped uh, John and Betty of their outer garments, and they led them out in their underwear into the street. Helen Priscilla was in the arms of her mother Betty. Uh, Betty was put on a horse and John's hands were tied behind him and uh, they were led some miles from the city and they were put in a mud hut. And there John's hands were unbound because he was able to write one last note to the China Inland Mission. They were working for that mission that Hudson Taylor had founded many years ago to spread the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know it's still active and there's a support group in our uh, town here that prays for them. And we know people that uh, have worked with them for many years. When he wrote a note to his colleagues at the China Inland Mission that his, himself, his wife, his baby were in the hands of these bandits... He didn't know whether they would survive. And so he wrote on the note, uh, Philippians 1.20, he said, whether we live or die, we desire that Christ would be glorified in our bodies. Well, Betty, that night in the mud hut, wrapped her daughter in a snuggly bunny and a little hood covered her. She stuck a little, she stuck a $10 bill behind her head in the hood um, thinking that uh, the bandits wouldn't see that. And she stuck the lactogen, the, the powdered milk, down into the hood as well. And she bundled her in as many warm winter clothes as she could and stuck her in a corner. The next day, then, John and Betty were taken out of the mud hut and John was stabbed to death in front of Betty and then they beheaded Betty. You would know any of this if it weren't for a brave Chinese evangelist named Mr. Lowe, who followed the stams, but just far enough behind that he wouldn't be caught by the, the, the communists. And he got there, and uh, he searched then the place, and many people had been killed, and he went from body to body, and he found them, finally. 
and he secured coffins for them and he put them in the coffins. And then he went looking for the little baby, Helen Priscilla. And he felt, oh, they probably bayoneted her. But he found her alive and well. And for 27 hours, she had slept without making a sound. And they hadn't spotted her. And he picked her up and he put the hood back and he found the powder and he found the $10 bill. The only person in the whole area who knew how to mix the powder and the water to feed the baby was uh, his wife. She'd had some nursing experience. So he took the baby back and uh, it was too dangerous then to take the bodies back. It was in fact uh, six weeks before the bodies could be safely removed from the hillside and and taken back to a Christian burial area where um, a few China Inland Mission people gathered and the bodies of the stams then were interred and uh, there they remain until the day of resurrection. You know, there's a lovely little missionary book which has done a lot of good, the martyrdom of... John and Betty Stan. Many of you read it, I'm sure. Frank Horton, the author of this hymn, was at that time the editorial secretary for the China Inland Vision. And he was in China. Uh, China is a, a, a great place. But uh, he had set out on a journey through the Chekwan province to see how the work was going on and he stayed with missionaries and encouraged them and Many of them were being moved because of the social chaos in, in the city. Foreign travel was being discouraged. So he moved through the hills of the Chekwan province. And the news came to him then that uh, John and Betty had been barbarously killed. And he was thinking of them and um, he began to write this carol. And uh, we sang it this morning, didn't we? It's become widely known in uh, a very short time. Um, Well, what did Frank Horton make? How theologically, how pastorally, uh, how um, for the comfort of our souls do we look at an event like that? And it has three stanzas. You see in the first stanza is on the humiliation of Christ. And in the second stanza, the theme is the incarnation of Christ. And the third stanza, he meditates in the hymn, in the verse there, on the adoration of Christ, the humiliation, the incarnation, and the adoration. And he contemplates the humiliation of Christ in the first verse, and he he focuses on the immeasurable wealth that was Jesus as glorious as God the Father was God the Son and there he was from all eternity he was rich when uh, David Morgan the leader of the 1859 revival in um, Aspetia the great spokesman and preacher of the gospel when um, he was opposed by Unitarians then uh, he quoted this verse to them the verse of our text And he says, uh, Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that uh, 
Through his poverty you might become rich. We know, he said, we know when he was poor. When was he rich? He was rich. He was rich in eternity. He was rich in divinity. He was rich in all the attributes and prerogatives and the names of God. He was rich. In the second stanza, you'll notice the focus is on the incomprehensible, the unfathomable God. Christ, fully divine, but now in the flesh, come for our salvation. And in the third stanza, then, the focus is on his indescribable love. The indescribable, the immeasurable love of Jesus Christ. Christ who is rich beyond all splendor. God beyond praising, love beyond telling. Immeasurable wealth is his. He's an incomprehensible, he's an unfathomable God with an indescribable love. And so paralleling the humiliation, the incarnation and the adoration, there is a meditation on his, his indescribable love. So we'll just look at those uh, three phrases for a moment. And in the first verse, you see the humiliation of Christ. He begins by saying, thou. That's how the hymn begins. Thou. Some carols focus on the message of the angels, and not so much on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, but what the angels said about him. In fact, the very first verse in such carols is the word, it. It came upon a midnight clear. And the it that uh, the angels are singing about is uh, the great words that they said, Glory to God on high and on earth, peace, good men. And to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And so the carol, that carol is very much about the message that God sent to this world in Jesus Christ. But this carol... It begins with thou. It squarely looks at Jesus Christ. He is the focus of uh, this carol's whole message to us. In each phrase, thou refers to Jesus Christ. It's a Christologically centered it's Christocentric. It's a hymn of praise to Christ. Every time you see you in it or thou in it, then it is referring to him. Christ, you are rich beyond all splendor. And he's reminding us of then the immeasurable riches, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and love and joy and peace. And long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. All these graces found in Jesus Christ. and They're all in him in an infinite degree. Glorious beyond any measure that we can have to measure them. You know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich. How rich he was, immeasurably wealthy. And yet for love's sake, 
Not because of any deserving on our part, but because he was moved with love for twerps and anoraks, for miserable hypocrites, for rebel sinners like ourselves. He loved us. Think of it. His heart came out towards us and he was determined to save us. So he divested himself of his immeasurable wealth and he became poor. He gave up his throne to be born in a manger. He gave up the courts of heaven and the innumerable company of angels like waves of glory praising him in all directions and he gave them all up for the rude stare of animals in a stable. And so the focus of the first uh, line is on the great humbling of Jesus Christ and uh, well it's a theme that that comes to us again and again in scripture you think especially of uh, Philippians chapter 2 and how Paul then wanting to get some reconciliation between Euodia and Syntyche with their self-consciousness of their rights and they had a place and they should be honored and esteemed and the the tensions that there were and the party spirit that was dividing the church and and then Paul speaks to them have this attitude let it be in you which was also in Christ Jesus he existed in the form of God he didn't regard equality with God as something to be grasped and And he couldn't let go of that. But he emptied himself. He took the form of a bondservant. He was made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself to death. Even the death of the cross. And so he appeals to them. This one, they say, is their saviour. And yet they are strutting their stuff so proudly in the congregation. And he tells them, this mind ought to be in you, didn't it? He came in poverty for us. And then he's thinking then of this couple, this young couple out on the mission field in their 20s. Their first baby, John and Betty. The humiliation that they endured. And it spawned him to think of the far greater humiliation of the sinless Son of God. and All the immeasurable glory that he gave up in coming into this world. And so you'll find in the catechisms a, a, a wonderful stress on the humiliation of Christ. The shorter catechism 27, wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born. The nine months of embryonic development, the emergence through the birth canal, his coming into the world, that he endured that, and that in a low condition, made under the law undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God and the accursed death of the cross 
in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. Now that's a wonderful, succinct summary, isn't it, of the humiliation of Christ. But if you go to the larger catechism then, well, it elaborates and it gives more biblical detail. Question 46, what was the state of Christ's humiliation? The state of Christ's humiliation was that low condition wherein he, for our sakes, emptying himself of his glory, took upon the form of a servant in his conception and birth, life, death, and after his death, until his resurrection. And then it says, how did Christ humble himself in his conception and birth? Christ humbled himself in his conception and birth in that being from all eternity the Son of God in the bosom of the Father, he was pleased in the fullness of time to become the Son of Man, made of a woman of low estate, and to be born of her with diverse circumstances of more than ordinary abasement. Well, now, you see what he's referring to? He's referring to the stable, isn't he? The journey there. On a donkey, one presumes the long journey in the last weeks of pregnancy. And then soon after, to Egypt, where he must flee for his life. The baby is taken there, and they have to find lodgings, and they have to survive there. More than ordinary abasement. And then it asks, how did Christ humble himself in this life? Christ humbled himself in his life by subjecting himself to the law, which he perfectly fulfilled, and by conflicting with the indignities of the world, temptations of Satan, and infirmities in his flesh, whether common to the nature of man, or particularly accompanying the low condition, it's saying to us, He was hungry. He was thirsty. He needed to ask her, drink of a woman. He was rejected. He suffered pain and the grief of the loss of those he loved. He knew the pain of crucifixion. Of his life slowly easing away after hours of pain. He knew that. And then he develops that. How did Christ humble himself in his death? Christ humbled himself in his death in that having been betrayed by Judas, forsaken by his disciples, scorned and rejected by the world, condemned by Pilate, tormented by his persecutors, having also conflicted with the terrors of death and the powers of darkness, felt and borne the weight of God's wrath, He laid down his life, an offering for sin, enduring the painful, shameful, and cursed death of the cross. But he's got one more question he wants to ask us. The Catechism says, wherein consists Christ's humiliation after his death? Christ's humiliation after his death consisted in his being buried and continuing in the state of the dead, and under the power of death until the third day, which hath otherwise been expressed in these words, he descended into hell. He's brought Frank Horton by 
his knowledge of the sufferings and death of this dedicated young couple who had gone to China to preach the gospel and bring Jesus and how they've been humiliated so terribly. And the wisdom and comfort and sanity that he derives to grasp this comes from his thought of the great journey he made from the bosom of the Father to the breast of, of Mary there in Bethlehem and the life of obscurity and opposition and suffering that he endured afterwards. Lord, you left the splendors of glory to save trashy people like us. You're rich beyond all splendor. Yet for our sakes you became poor. He's meditating on this. And that's how the first answer comes of that hymn. The three phases of which Christ's humiliation was displayed. His birth, uh, riches for poverty. Throne for a manger. Celestial courts for a stable. That's the first verse then of this hymn. And then the second verse talks about the incarnation of Christ. And he goes to meditate on that. And uh, he, he is thinking of Christ in the flesh. You who are God beyond all praising, he says. Christ, you are divine. You are deity. All that God is, you are. And so all our praise isn't nearly enough. To magnify your great name. We can't give him enough glory. To match the glory that is due to Jesus Christ. Here are these missionaries and the grapevine works and the telephone and the letters go out. And all of China Inland Mission staff there in China. The hundreds of them are heartbroken at what has happened. Why? Why? Why did God allow this to happen to these faithful people why have you allowed a three month old precious little girl never to know her father and mother why did you send these gifted missionaries in, into China to be preachers of the gospel and not bring them back and not let them see fruit and, uh, and old age why? why did you allow this to happen and he's meditating upon this, and so he goes to Christ. You know, there are 20 or so words that are the heart of the Christian faith that I always think about. God is sovereign in all things, and every problem finds its solution at Calvary. And that's been... A a basis of my own faith and my own pilgrimage and until tonight. He thinks of Calvary, doesn't he? Here is Christ so worthy that we haven't got the tongues to praise him sufficiently. He thinks of them. Uh, he's making his way across the mountains and he's devoted to Jesus Christ. He's a, a fragrant Christian, Frank Orton, and he's filled with love for the Lord Jesus. You are God beyond all praise. And in your incarnation, because of your love, you became man. 
Your incarnation was because of your love. You condescended and in your condescension to become, to stoop so low. It was because you loved us to raise sinners up to heaven by your mighty plan. That was it, he says. Or uh, again, Philippians 2, you see, that's Paul in prison writing a letter to this church and reminding them that, uh, he, that he was set there for the defense of the gospel. And it was all working. His imprisonment, his inability to visit them and preach and evangelize, it, it was all for the gospel's advance. He tells them, God is in, in charge. And then he reminds them, Christ being found in fashion, as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. And so in Philippians 2, he wants to tell us about the humiliation of Christ, but we never end there, do we? When we talk about the cross of Christ, we talk about the cross and resurrection of Christ. We say that. Because the end wasn't the cry, it is finished into your hands, I commend my spirit. That wasn't the end, the end was. And on the first day of the week, women were gathered there. and They saw the stone rolled away. And when they looked inside, there was a messenger of God saying, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen, as he said. The death and resurrection. He lives in the power of an endless life. And uh, Paul weaves it in, in Romans 6, uh, into the, the death and resurrection of Christ and its implications for ourselves because we were baptized into the death of Christ. That as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. We don't walk as we used to walk when all our fun was just in the things of this world. But now uh, th things are different. This is a new life we, we are living through Jesus Christ. We become united with him in his death. Then certainly we are united with him in his resurrection. And so he meditates on um, the, the stooping so low, the condescension, the humiliation, and then his resurrection. And so at the end of the second stanza, he is saying, you are incomprehensible, O Christ. Your love is unfathomable. You became man for me. How wonderful. And so he's gaining and gaining now more uh, rationale and deepening and teaching himself to trust in God at bloodied, dying times. And then the last verse is about his adoration. He turns to praise. He turns to thanksgiving from humiliation and incarnation. Thou who art love beyond all telling, 
Your love is indescribable. I can't tell it. I don't have the eloquence. I don't have the, the, the tongues to describe to you the love of Christ. It just, it passes our understanding. You are love. God is love. John 4.8 tells us. But here in Christ we see the love of God. John tells us in John 1.18 and uh, the Apostle Paul prays a prayer. And he's praying for every Christian to grasp more and more the love of God. We'll never um, preach to ourselves and comfort ourselves and help ourselves unless we address our souls with the theme of the love of God. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3 verse 18 that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. His love for me, his love for you, bringing him down to the stable and the cross and the tomb because he loved us. He did it. Horton says, your love is beyond my ability to tell it. I can't describe it. Not your love. And he wants you to busy yourself then um, in knowing that that love has, is the source of every good thing, every amazing providence, every gospel invitation that you've heard, every entreaty, every spark of longing you have to know this Savior for yourself. To know his love. And in the rest then. In the final lines of this lovely Christmas carol. He piles up the names and the, the functions of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's Savior. He's King. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. God within us. God abiding in us. God dwelling in us. He lives in us. By his Holy Spirit. Imagine that. This same Christ then, who emerged from Mary's womb. This same Christ is in us. In us to instruct and protect and provide and guide and lead. And subdue our lusts and encourage every sweet grace of love and joy and peace. He does this. And he has one solitary petition left then. He says, make us what thou wouldst have us be. May your will be done in my life. That's what I want. May your will be done here on earth in my life, in my home, in my daily experience, as your will is done in heaven. And when I know that your will is being done, I won't be bitter and self-pitying and critical and whine and whinge. 
because you are making me what you desire me to be. You know what's best for me. If you give me a cup to drink and there's bitterness in that cup and if you assure me there's no other cup then give me grace to drink that cup too. So here were this, uh, this fine couple and their death provoked Frank Horton to write this hymn. And uh, in their giving of themselves, the Christians throughout all China knew that they were called to follow a, a crucified Christ. And that the terms of discipleship are stark and simple. If anyone would follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Blessed are you when men revile you and say all manner of things against you and do all manner of things towards you. And you rejoice and you be glad. Well, there's a great reward in heaven for you. Well done. Well done, John. Well done, Betty. The voice in heaven said as they were welcomed into God's presence uh, forevermore. And their daughter, when she came to know the Lord and served him all her days, she too with them, united the great Christian hope lies before us. We worship you, O Christ. That's what Frank Horton says. Well, may God sanctify us and oh, make this our prayer to him for ourselves as we contemplate the humiliation of our blessed Savior moved by love for us for that. And we uh, are moved to adore him and sing to him and serve him so much better next year than this year. All for love's sake he became poor. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that uh, the wonderful incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that will move us more and more to give ourselves, to present our bodies living sacrifices to thee. If I were a shepherd, I would give a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my heart by part. What I have, I give thee. Give thee my heart. O oh Lord, be the Lord of the hearts of every one of us here for the rest of our lives and for eternity. And help us in times of great distress to trust in thee. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.